0: God, we understand that we are people who are held by a love that will not let us go. There is nothing that we can do to make you love us more. There is nothing we can do to make you love us less. That your love for us is not dependent upon us. Its source, its explanation is to be found in the grand and glorious, gracious heart of the thrice-holy God, that you've loved us before the foundations of the earth, and that we are a people who are held so tightly that your love, your love will never let us go. Oh, Heavenly Father, even in the face of what we did last week, even knowing our failure of the past day, Oh God, we are people who celebrate the fixedness of the love of God. And Father, while we worship here today, might that be the thing that that so entrances us, not the, the singing, not the preaching, but might all eyes be fixed upon the love of God which has which has sent his son to die in the place of his hell-bound people, who are no longer hell-bound, but now are in the clutches of grace. Father, we continue to pray for the issues that face the, our congregation. We pray for the mounces as they continue the radiation we pray for the Austells and pray that you will continue to heal her and bring her back to us. We pray for others, O oh God, whose health has taken a turn, Mary Richardson, and pray that you will raise her up again. Our Father, um, we pray for the upcoming days that face Gracie Van, the, uh, the choices that are in front of us, the, uh, the opportunities that you have set before us. O oh God, might we f- be found following very closely in the footsteps of the God who made us and the God who redeemed us in Christ Jesus. And now, Father, we come to an opportunity that we have to give, to express, to state, to participate. We, we, uh, we have this privilege of stating tangibly that we are lovers of this God who revealed himself in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, accept these gifts. They're small. They're only tokens, but they do come from the base of our souls. They say that we trust you and we appreciate what you've done for us in Christ. To that end, we give, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, of course you can see that this is uh, representative of the youth ministry here at Gracie and I'm sure you can figure that out, but if, you are, um, if you're not coming uh, on Wednesday nights, that's a great reason to come. Uh, you don't, in fact, if you like, you can sleep while I teach Romans, but um, to get your kids involved in that, the junior high and the senior high thing here, uh, is well worth coming. If you're not doing that now, I, I would plead with you, change your schedule, uh, get your kids involved in the junior high and senior high ministry here. That's a, it's a flourishing part of what's what God is doing at Gracie Van. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the 12th chapter of the gospel according to Mark. And follow as I read the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, beginning at verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, "'They will respect my son,' But those vinedressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vinedressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. It's Tuesday, Tuesday of Passion Week, which is the last week in the life of Jesus Christ. And on that Tuesday, Jesus tells one of his last parables. And in that parable, he gives us uh, a brief outline of sacred history, and then he goes on to tell us what is going to happen to him in the next, within the next 72 hours. Jesus gives us a summary of God's relationship to his people in a brief parable, that I, the one I just read. Only hours earlier, he had been asked, by what authority did he do the things that he did? That's in chapter 11, verse 28. And uh, in this autobiographical parable, he includes the answer. The authority is, of course, because he's the heir. He's the son. The, um, the hearers of this parable, knowing that, um, that the villains of this parable is a reference to them, they finally conclude that uh, Palestine's not big enough for both of them. So somebody's going to have to go, and it ain't going to be them. So they begin to look for a reason. It matters not how big or how small, but they've got to find a reason to, um, to condemn him to death, which they do within the next 72 hours. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a pretty simple parable. I love to preach on parables. Um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity in terms of uh, the import, but this is pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Let me give you the facts in true Jack Webb fashion. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. I want to give you those real simply. They're, they're, they're not hard to figure out. I'm sure you can do it without me. The owner of the vineyard, a symbol of God. the, the vineyard itself, certainly representing Israel. the vine dressers, those are the religious leaders of Israel, the uh, emissaries, the representatives of the owner. those would be Old Testament prophets. And then you have, of course, the heir. That uh, is pretty clear. I hope it's a reference, of course, to Jesus Christ. One of those uh, little facts in the parable. I'd like for you to take a closer look at. And if you've still got your Bible open, see if you can find real hurriedly Isaiah chapter five. Uh, don't lose Mark 12. We're, we'll go back there. But I, I wanted to read this to you because I think it demonstrates all over again the genius of the Scriptures, the great unity and and harmony and agreement in the scriptures. So so, um, I said to you just then that the vineyard is Israel. Let me read you Isaiah 5, just the first six or seven verses. Now let me sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds, that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel." And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression; for righteousness, but behold a cry for help. I, I hope you can see why I, I read that. Gang, Do you see what marvelous unity there is in the scriptures? Here's this statement that was probably written a thousand years before the one that we just read in Mark chapter twelve, and what Jesus is doing is doing is is using an image which everybody in Israel knew all about that Israel was the vineyard, the vineyard of Jehovah. Now, understanding that little bit of uh, outline, the, the straight and forward, I, I think that uh, are really undeniable, we, we can now, I think, better understand what uh, the message of this parable. It's a, it's a story that has four lessons, at least four that I want to point out. And uh, when you combine the four, you get a wonderful picture, a wonderful portrait of who God is. Number one, it's, it's a portrait of God's desire for his people. It's a portrait of, of God's patience and long suffering with his people. It's a portrait of his severity with his people. And uh, additionally, it's a description of the ultimate triumph of God. The desire of God, the patience of God, the severity of God, and the ultimate triumph of God. Those are the four things I want you to see as we look at this parable. The desire of God for his, para, for his people. Lesson number one. Simply put, it's not real hard to dig it out of there, ladies and gentlemen. It's like any other man that, that plants anything and, and waits eagerly for his plants to produce. All of us have had that kind of experience. Surely you've dug around in the backyard from time to time. Maybe it's getting time for to dig some more. And, and, and why do you do that? Why do you plant those plants? Because you want them to die? Some of us must, because that's all they do. Do, but um, you've had this experience. It's nothing hard to understand. God invested a lot in this vineyard. We're told he put a hedge around it. He put a wine press and a tower. And, and you know, gang, it's interesting as you as you try to read uh, the the commentaries on the, the the commentaries went wild trying to figure out what the tire was and the hedge and the and the wine press. And you can identify them any way you like. It, it matters not to me because the point is. Like any other planter, God doesn't do all this work with no purpose in mind. He has an idea, he has a goal that he's trying to uh, see brought about and he does all that is necessary to achieve his desired ends. It's all a reflection of his commitment to Israel and the reasonable expectation of enjoying the fruit of his labors." Now, gang, you do see that, don't you? I mean, you do see in the parable, it's, it's... You do see, I hope, that how right it is for God to expect something from His people, from this vineyard. That's nothing unusual. That's nothing extraordinary. It's it's nothing outrageous or hard to understand about his desire. He's not being an unreasonable, demanding, austere owner. He planted something and he expected it to produce. Just a natural expectation tied to the extensive labors uh, and the investment of any landowner. You know, do you know anyone that spends all spring putting in some crop while at the same time wanting it to produce nothing? Now, that would be unusual. But it's a very reasonable, understandable, legitimate desire on the part of God, having put in this vineyard and gone to all the trouble to hedge it about and build a tower and all the things that he did in terms of investing himself in the vineyard. It's very reasonable. Very understandable that he would desire to see it bring forth fruit. And not only that, ladies and gentlemen, if I could slant it a little bit differently, the goodness of God, as it is lavished on Israel, the goodness of God was supposed to produce something. If I could get ahead of myself just a minute, God did not send Jesus Christ Christ to die so that we could remain rebels. His provisions are designed to produce something. Let me let me state it another way you know, in to a to a Wall Street savvy culture that surely can understand this. What return on his investment? Has God gotten from you? Because He expects one. He desires one. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? It's very understandable that He would. Nothing unreasonable about that. Nothing f- extraordinary, is there? But vintage time rolls around. And so the landowner sends some of his representatives to collect some of the fruit. And the tenant farmers, um, they're not real happy to see the representatives of of the landowner. And and don't miss this, ladies and gentlemen, they're only tenant farmers. They're sharecroppers. They don't own the land. No, no. God is the owner. They're just sharecroppers, no more. But when God sends his represent- when the landowner sends his representatives to get some of the fruit, their response isn't exactly what He had wanted. Um, and, and I would point out also, I want you to note that their response is not in any way signifying any kind of failure on the part of the landowner. None of the vine dressers say to the landowner, "Oh, Mr. landowner, we would love to give you some fruit, but you did us such a poor job in the first place that you know we couldn't get any fruit out of this." No, no, no. The issue has nothing to do with, with what the landowner did. And in that, ladies and gentlemen, you begin to see in verses 3 through 8, the second lesson of this parable, you begin to see the patience and the long-suffering of God as he sends a steady stream of divine messengers, prophets, prophets that that come to the, to the vineyard and And tell again and again these vine dressers what is the legitimate expectation of the landowner. They're simply trying to point out that the landowner has legitimate claims and legitimate expectations about fruit. And their response that is, the vine dressers, let me read it to you. Others were tortured. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. From Moses to John the Baptist, ladies and gentlemen, God sends a steady stream of representatives, and they're stoned. They're sawn in two. They were imprisoned, scourged, chains. That that's how they were received. That is, that's how God's representatives, who were simply there to tell the vine dressers that God had a legitimate expectation. And that's how they were received. And, and in the parable, you see that God's love is not wearied by their cruelty, but He continues to sin and continues to call for repentance. After each act of violence, He continues to sin. And then finally, we're told in Acts chapter 7 that um, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they kill those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Long, steady stream of prophets and messengers until they finally get to the son and they kill him too. And that would take place within 72 hours of the telling of this parable. Why? Why did they do it? It's even mentioned here in the text. Looking for seven, but those vine dressers said among themselves, "This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Here it is, and the inheritance will be ours." That's what they wanted. Uh, their 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 goal is to uh, uh, take what was God's. That is. Um, this, uh, this thing that uh, we are sharecropping on, we don't want anybody to own it but us. Uh, it's mutiny, ladies and gentlemen, uh, plain and simple. We want to be the owner, we want to be the big shot. No, no, no God telling us what to do. They want to be God, they want to eliminate any, any more consideration of the landowner. It's very similar to something that Satan said to Eve in Genesis 3 when he whispered, Oh, I know why he doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Yeah. Because he knows that when you do, you'll be like God. And you can be like God if you'll eat it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, has been the desire ever since the garden. And then we're told, and and at this point, I want to borrow a line out of Luke's version. Luke tells this parable, too, in his gospel. But I want to borrow a line out of Luke's because it's, it's so full of empathy. Luke puts it like this. In verse 9, Luke puts, he says, he, he, he portrays God as soliloquizing with himself. And Luke says, what shall I do? It's almost as if God is, is talking to himself. What shall I do? Um, what will the owner of the vineyard do? The, um, the vine dressers sure think they know. <laughs> He's not going to do anything. He can't do anything. We own the land. It's ours now. Which points out, ladies and gentlemen, the third lesson of this parable, which is has to do with the severity of God. It's mentioned in verse 9. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Nobody listening to this parable could misunderstand that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, That Jesus was saying, you're going to be destroyed and the vineyard will be given to others. The point is, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, there comes a time there comes a point at which the patience of God is exhausted. And he says, I'm going to destroy them. You all know that um, judgment did come upon the nation of Israel under Roman legions led by Titus around the year 70. He made good on his word. But I can say the uh, the vineyard had been given to others long before that. Israel was set aside and Gentiles were now grafted in. That took place at Pentecost. And with within three days of Jesus telling this story, it all comes true. Actually, not all of it. Within six days of him telling this story, it all comes true. But within three days, the officials, the vine dressers, the keepers of the vineyard, such as Annas and Caiaphas, they throw the heir out of the city and they crucify him, spread eagle, out on the city garbage dump. And within three days, three days of that, another part of this parable was fulfilled, which demonstrates the fourth lesson, which is the ultimate triumph of God. And you, you see in verses 10 and 11 that Jesus changes metaphors. He has been using the metaphor of a vineyard. Now he uses the metaphor of a stone, a cornerstone, a building. The son of God, the son of the heir, the, the son of the landowner would be despised and rejected. He would be the stone that was rejected. But then he goes on to foretell, that is, Jesus does, what would happen ultimately to the stone that stone rejected now becomes the chief cornerstone. God raises up that which the vine dressers thought they had destroyed. Under this symbol of a vineyard, he talks about his death. Under this symbol of a stone, he talks about his resurrection. And just for a moment, there in verses 10 and 11, Jesus ceases to be the lamb and becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah. He looks into the face of his murderers and tells them that their rejection of him would not be the last they would hear from him. He also tells them that their rejection would not in the smallest way hinder the purposes of God. You know, I wondered as I meditated on this story this week, I wondered, was this Jesus' way of warning them one final time? Warning them of the horror of what they were about to do and the hope that these men would amend their ways? Well, they didn't. In fact, their response, recorded in verse 12, will curdle your blood. They sought to lay hands on him, but because of the multitude, they couldn't, and so they knew that he was speaking against them, and so they kind of snuck off into the shadows to try and find a way to, to destroy him. You know, gang, um, in that response of verse 12, you get a real good glimpse into evil. Have you, ever, um, have you ever tried to figure out why some people do some of the things that they do And you wonder, how could they be so blind? How could he have done that? Oh, that was so stupid, so wicked. Well, that's what sin does, ladies and gentlemen. It blinds you. It hardens you. Evil can look into the face of truth, understand the truth, and hate the truth. Goodness can be seen and enjoyed and crucified because that's what sin does to you. It's, it's, a, it's a statement, or the parable is at least a, a portion of it, is a statement of the extremes to which men will go when they desire to get rid of the landowner Just recently, I I had um, um, a a public school teacher tell me that she had received a memo from the Board of Education. And the memo was informing her of some change of terminology. Because Easter's rolling around and um, not wanting to offend, now the break that was, as for, what, 2,000 years? The break, which is called Easter, can't be called Easter anymore. Not only that, Christmas, Christmas is to be renamed. We can't talk about Christmas. No, 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 no. It's just... It's just the winter break or the winter solstice or whatever it's called. Now, and I I hope you understand me, ladies and gentlemen, there isn't a smidgen of racist blood in me in what I'm about to say. You might understand it like that, but that's your problem, not mine. But we can keep the name of Martin Luther King holiday. We can keep the name of President's holiday. But we're going to have to get rid of that entitled Christmas. We're going to have to rid ourselves of any vestige, of any emphasis that might remind us that we're only sharecroppers. I want to be the owner, and I'm going to have to get rid of him. And people will go to maddening extremes. just so that they can get rid of the landowner. And ladies and gentlemen, it's only begun. Because the desire of the culture in which we find ourselves is to get rid of every memory that there's a landowner. I wanna be the owner no God telling me you want to do. Stop all this talk about an accountability to God. Why? Why, I'm not even sure that he ever existed. Well, uh, gang, we live in a world that is stained with blood, but the spilling of blood is not the final word. Both of these things both the killing of the sun and his his rejection as the stone and his establishment as the chief cornerstone. Both of those. Both of those was the Lord's doing, were the Lord's doings, ladies and gentlemen. And they are marvelous in our eyes. I want to close with just a couple of words of application and and then I'm finished. First, my dear friends. If you're one of the emissaries of this landowner, I want you to know that you ought to expect the same kind of harsh treatment. Anybody who um, is in the business of reminding this culture that they're only sharecroppers, they don't own it. Anybody who is doing that is not appreciated If you tell them that they are the master of their own soul and the captains of their own soul and masters of their own destiny, they'll applaud you. But um, if you're you're in the business of saying to this vineyard that the owner expects fruits, then you can expect the same treatment. And you know some of you who are here today are just like those vine dressers, and we're so glad you're here. I, I don't mean that. But you bristle when someone tells you that you're not the landowner. You, you're infuriated when t- someone says to you, "You need Jesus." That you're a sinner. Don't talk to me like that. I'm. I'm one of the landowners. No, you're not. No, you're not. And God has brought people after people after people after event after event after event to remind you that you're not the landowner and that he expects a certain fruit I'm here to remind you of the same thing. And oh, my friend, would that your response would be so different than the response described in verse 12. One other thing. Who must this be who predicts his death and then predicts his rising? It's the heir. It's the Son of God. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's who it is. And oh, my friends, we invite you to Him. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word that is so descriptive, so helpful, so such a marvelous reminder of what is true and what isn't. And I pray, Father, that all of us, your people, as well as those who are here who are still outside the kingdom, might we all benefit from looking again at what Jesus Christ has to say. And might the result be that he finds fruit being born from us who love him might he discover that there is fruit in an ever-increasing manner in all of our lives. We acknowledge, O God, that it is a legitimate expectation that you have of us. We bow humbly and submissively before you, O God, as the one who has all the right to expect fruit from your people. Might we as your people bring forth much fruit for your glory. And then, Father, for those who are here today who have not yet met this Savior and who have difficulty hearing that they're sinners, that they're not in charge, that they are facing destruction without Christ, might their response be one of glad reception, of humble obedience, and a full-scale closure with Christ. That is our desire, O God, to see men who were once bearing no fruit now alongside all of us bearing much fruit. To that end, we pray, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we're going to close.